They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Witness Docs from Stitcher. This is an historic time. This could be the next 1918 pandemic. Why is it taking so long to get a screening test? Are you isolating yourself? Who do you count on? It's actually to protect you. Wash hands, wash hands, wash hands. I mean, you're the scientist. You're going to have to tell me. (laughs) Welcome, welcome to Science Rules, Coronavirus Edition. I'm your host, Bill Nye. And this is the series that brings you the latest analysis and the science of this pandemic to keep you informed, prepared, and calm. We're all in this together, my friends. In the U.S., more coronavirus cases are being reported every day. And part of the reason we're seeing this rise is because more tests are being conducted. At the same time, here in New York, the hospitalization rates have begun to slow. On Sunday, they were doubling every two days. On Monday, every 3.4 days. On Tuesday, every 4.7 days. It seems to be spreading out, slowing down. But is this progress real? Or is it just a consequence of so-called small sample sizes? I mean, two days, four days, that's not that much to go on. But get this. As of Thursday, the 26th of March there have been 79,082 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the U.S. with over 1,000 deaths. So a question on everyone's mind, how long till the number of cases reported every day begins to go down, begins to decrease? If we relax our isolation efforts, social distancing and so on, will the numbers go right back up again? These are the kinds of questions I want to ask our guest today. He's Adam Kucharski, a biostatistician at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He looks at the numbers to understand how diseases spread and what behaviors we can take to better control these diseases. It's really extraordinary. Adam Kucharski, doctor, welcome to Science Rules. Hi, thanks for having me. And you're in London. I am, yes. So let me ask you this. If we uh, examine just the hospitalization rates here in New York City, how often people go into the hospital with symptoms of coronavirus serious enough that they decide to go into the hospital, it, is this social distancing working? Is it, is it really effective? 
I think if we're looking at people coming into hospital, that's really infections that happened maybe two, three weeks ago. So we're very much looking in the past. And if we want to work out what's going on with these, these measures, the social distancing, um, we have this kind of lag effect. And, and as you said as well, there's this issue with potentially, you know, one hospital might not be exactly the same as a, another. So certainly it's hopeful that in, in many places we will see the effects of, of social distancing and people taking this serious, seriously come in. But, you know, in, in the early days, it's hard to see how much of a signal there is. But how about this? If it weren't going, if the trend were not going this way, that would be a bad indication, right? That would be an indication of something not working at all. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you're seeing um, particularly severe cases uh, going up, that's really a very clear indication that you've had a lot of transmission happening. Um, and, and if nothing's changed in the meantime, that means that there's a lot more infections that are going to become symptomatic and, so, and ill in the future. So, so let me ask you, how, is there a way to assess from where you sit and the work that you do? Is there a way to figure out how serious the infections are? That is to say, if you have so many hospitalizations because of serious infections. Can you then infer how many not so serious infections or not so serious uh, symptoms are ta- are being experienced out in the in the populace? We can, yes. Yeah. So we're getting increasingly um, good estimates for people who show symptoms. Uh, so now, a few different studies, including some of the work we've done, estimate that about one percent of symptomatic cases end up being fatal. Um, so one percent, one percent of symptomatic cases. Yeah. In other words, there's another percentage of no symptom or hardly any symptoms at all. Exactly, and that's I mean that's the big unknown at the moment. So we we have pretty pretty good evidence from a few studies that of of symptomatic cases, on average, one in a hundred um, will be fatal. But it's not clear how much out there is is very mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic. Um, and, and there's a whole bunch of, of early studies, but really that, that number of, of the proportion of people who get infected who have clear symptoms you know, potentially could be between 20 and 80%. There's a lot of uncertainty around that. 20 to 80%, that is quite a range, <laughs> man. Yeah, so, so depending, there's about four or five studies out there that, that give some evidence on this. And some, some say, actually, it's pretty high. You know, 80% of people seem to be symptomatic on, in these data. And then there's other ones. So some of the reports from Italy are suggesting, well, actually, no, maybe it's only, you know, 20, 25%. And, um, and again, it just depends on, on how you slice the data and what population you're studying, because this is really early stages still. So in London, you know, here in the U.S., nominally the world's most influential culture, certainly uh, a very technically very advanced society compared with the many. We don't have enough tests. We don't have close to enough tests. Everybody's talking about how there's not enough tests. Do you have the same problem in London, in Britain, rather? We do have the, the same problem. Um, um, and we think probably in the US now, maybe you know, somewhere between 10 and 20% of cases are being reported. Um, that's, that's all? Probably, that, yeah. 10 um, to 20%? Yeah, and the rest are the symptoms are so, are so manageable that people yeah. don't report them. And yeah, also and think, the knowledge yeah. that you can't get a test, what good does it tell anybody? What good does it do to tell anybody? Exactly. And I, I mean, in the UK, we, we see similar, probably not even 10% being reported. But then I think all of us know somebody who's had symptoms of this and, and haven't been able to get tests. So anecdotally, it lines up with, with the sort of estimates we're getting. Is social distancing with respect to coronavirus 19 
Is it effective? Social distancing effective? Saying two meters, six feet from people, is that good? I mean, the early data is, is what happened in Wuhan, and we estimate that did have a big effect. Um, and one of the, the challenges early on was obviously the data coming out of China, as we, we're now seeing for all countries, there's a lot of variability. It wasn't clear how much testing there was. Um, and so we combined a whole bunch of different data sets. We also looked at how many cases were being exported to other countries, you know, some of these evacuation flights that happened, people being tested. We, we, we got all these bits of data together. Um, and we got a, a pretty clear signal that when all these measures were going in in Wuhan, they they really cut their transmission, even in that first week or so, by about 60%. Um, 60%. So two-thirds. Yeah, two-thirds in, in that first week or so. In so the first really week. A, a remarkable drop. And, and we were pretty convinced that, that that was happening. But that's quite a top-level way of looking at it. You know, it, it doesn't break down, was it the quarantine? Was it the, the, the specific bit of distancing? Was it travel? Was it, you know, what was driving this? And this is what we're now trying to do is, is pick apart because because that, ideally that's what we want to know what aspects of these measures are most important to keep in place and which ones can we maybe ease off on when when case numbers come down. Uh, how does this compare then with the Spanish flu in 1918? 50 was it 50 million people died yeah. around the world, right? Twice yeah. as many people as World War One. So there are a few differences. Um, but they, they didn't they have are, ventilators for one thing, well, right? That's, that's one big one. Um, although saying that, seeing these these images, I mean, in London, they're building a 4,000-person hospital uh, in one of the big conference centers. And, you know, in the U.S., we see these images of, I think it was like one of the, the sports uh, halls in some of the, the big campuses being converted into wards. So a lot of that imagery from Spanish flu, we're now seeing again. So that's just something I, I never thought I'd, I'd sort of see again on the news. But the big difference with this, I think, though, is the age distribution that... Spanish flu hit those younger groups very hard as well. So a lot of um, a lot of the severe cases and deaths were happening in people in their their teens, twenties, thirties. Um, whereas for this, it does seem to track um, sort of seasonal flu more closely in terms of the age profile, but the risk is is probably about ten times higher. Wow. We'll be back right after this. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. With my busy life, I use shipped same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the bag. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at shipped.com. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. You're a mathematician. You study this type of uh, pandemic. This whole thing started with one infection. Is that right? One infection led to this whole thing. 
Yeah, that's what the um, you know. So a lot of the genetic data points to it, it was it was either one infection or one kind of exposure, and maybe a few people got infected um, from a source. Yeah, uh, and it all started from that. So can is there a way? Have you found an effective way to explain, for lack of a better phrase, exponential growth to people that this is a, a real thing uh, that when one person gets affected, two people get infected, four people, yeah. eight people, 16 people. Have you found a good way to explain that to people? I think one way to explain it is, is even just to think on a month timescale that actually for coronavirus, the gap between one person getting infected and the next is about five days on average. Um, so we call that a generation time, one generation infection to the next. So that's about five days and people on average infect sort of two or three others. So if you, yeah, just take the middle value. Let's assume each person infects two and a half more people on average. Um, then if you start with one case and just play that forward, every five days you get two and a half more times what there was before. And then you tally up all those infections. By the end of the month, you've got about 400 cases in total from that one initial case. But if you cut transmission in half, so you're not infecting two and a half, you're infecting about 1.25, so 50% off transmission. And you're exactly the same, you start with one case and you play it forward over a month. Um, then in that case, you're only really infecting, I think, a, a dozen or so uh, on average. And I think that's, I found that quite a powerful way of just thinking of that timescale because that potentially could be, you know, that's just one person who has or hasn't stayed inside. And that difference in behavior in the wider population um, in terms of subsequent impact, you know, you're looking at going from, from 400 cases to you know, something that's 10 or so that's far more manageable. Just, just by one by, person staying inside, one person distancing him or herself. That would be everybody distancing themselves, but it's, it's just starting from that one initial from case. One, yeah, All right. So if, if you have, let's say on my city block in New York, there's probably, I mean, I'm not kidding. In New York, there's 10,000 people on a city block. If uh, 5,000 of them stay home, the knock-on effects of in, the number of people infected is astonishing. Yeah. It's got to be into the hundreds of thousands. Yeah. But is that right? Potentially. I mean, you know, we're looking at these, these epidemics. You know, when you run, run these kind of models forward for a city, you know, at, if you just sit back and let this thing run at the peak, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about kind of having about 15% maybe of your city at, at one go infected. So obviously, if you can get that down um, and even just reduce by half by, by a bit more, then you're going from a situation where you've got vast numbers of people infected, and that would mean you know, hospitals completely overwhelmed, to something where the numbers are still going to be infections coming in, but that's far more manageable for your hospital. So uh, what would be the consequences if here in the United States people stop social distancing on the premise is on Easter Sunday, just a couple of weeks from now. What would be the consequences if people stop taking these steps? We've done a little bit of work looking at that, um, and it it comes up very fast again. I mean, you almost don't need to kind of think too mathematically about it. You can you can just kind of look at the data and, and replay what happened. So say say we implement social distancing and the number of cases declines a bit. You know, maybe back to where we were a few weeks ago. Um, but we know a few weeks ago, when we weren't sort of putting all these things in place, uh, cases skyrocketed pretty quickly from that point. So what you'd essentially be doing is 
if we put social distancing in hypothetically for two, three weeks, we'd get back to where we were, say, a month ago. And then as soon as we lifted, we'd play it forward again. And then we'd be overwhelmed probably within, you know, another three, four weeks after that. So you were you made an offhanded remark earlier on about you never expected to see this in your lifetime. Like you're a mathematician. You were a little bit involved in Africa, Ebola, and then the Middle East uh, respiratory syndrome. Yeah, we did some, some analysis of that, yeah. But you never expected something like this, right? Yeah, I think it's seen the impact. I think it's very easy to to think about textbook features of a disease, but it's much harder to actually see the impact and live through that. And a lot of countries are still very early on. You know, in Europe's become really the center of this now, but you've got huge parts of Africa which are very early in their outbreaks. And and the, the devastation we're seeing now in Europe is still yet to play out in, in probably the majority of the world. So how reliable, when people talk about the death rate or the fatality rate, how concerned should we all be that uh, when so many deaths are happening in Spain uh, versus China versus somewhere else, if we try to project that on our own lives, how, how indicative or how, uh, how much weight should we give to fatality data, to death data? I think, I think that's definitely you know, something we, we really have to pay attention to. I think even some of the arguments early on about how fatal is this? And you know, is this that we're just, there's a load of cases we're not seeing in China and maybe this isn't such a big risk. I think now you can see you've got towns in Italy with thousands of deaths um, or sort of towns and cities rather. Um, and so even if you, know, you, you put the math to one side, you just have to look at that and say, well, even if everybody in that area has been infected, that's still a, a huge amount of deaths to be seen for such a small area. What is the best case scenario? What's the worst case scenario? In your opinion, um, so I think the worst, the worst case scenario is one where um, we get stuck in this cycle of having to lock down. We maybe ease off for a bit. We get another outbreak. We have to lock down again. And a lot of the modelling that's coming out suggests that you'd probably have to do that for, for the majority of the time. You'd have to be in this lockdown. So, so not all at once, but you'd have to maybe do it for a couple of months, ease off for a month or two, do it for another couple of months until we get a vaccine or something uh, in maybe yeah, a, vaccine, year, yeah. a year or two. Who knows? Um, I think a more optimistic scenario is we get, we get much better at testing. We get much better at identifying people at risk and situations that drive transmission. So when we ease off these lockdowns, um, we can put these more focused measures in place. Hopefully we can get better treatments because yeah, if, it, if the outcomes aren't so severe, then our health system can cope with more infections. Um, I think that combination, you know, then maybe... We might still need some more dramatic measures to, to fully prevent another wave, but we could we could have quite a long period where where we can resume some element of, of normal routine in our lifestyles. So do you think we're going to get this coronavirus under control? In the long term, I think that's, that's the big question. Uh, I think the lockdowns we're putting in are going to reduce transmission and uh, hopefully cases will come down in a number of these cities. But but what happens next? I mean, Wuhan that, that put these things in in late January is is only really going to open up um, in in the next couple of weeks. So that's that's a long time for for a country to be in lockdown. And and the concern there, of course, is that as they lift these things, are they going to see new cases and new introductions and, and will almost the be waves back to square one? Start yeah. Again. yeah. Well, well, humankind will get through this. It's just how many of us at what quality of life, and so. Uh, 
It just shows you the importance of science. Doesn't it show you the importance of mathematics think, and these things? I think it really does. Science is our way out of this. I mean, there's um so so Trevor Bedford, who's a US researcher who does a lot of work on this, he had a nice um a nice Twitter thread on it the other day, and he he made the point that this is our Apollo program. We've got ourselves in a situation where there's no good options and and really science and innovation is our only way out of this. Thank you. Well said. Thank you. Our guest today uh, on uh, Science Rules Coronavirus Edition has been Dr. Adam Kercharski, a mathematician who studies pandemics. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thanks for having me. As you know, here at Science Rules Coronavirus Edition, we look forward to receiving your voicemails. And so many of you have taken the time to phone in, and thank you. This next one really, really gets to me. Take a listen. Oh, hi there, Bill Nye. My name is Giselle. I'm currently in the hospital right now um, during this coronavirus pandemic, and um, I've been tested positive. And right now I'm in a room just with a bed and can't go anywhere, um, just have just myself and my phone and... It's crazy right now, so I just want to let you know, do self-social distancing, um, keep yourself safe, because people are over, you know, underestimating this uh, virus, so I just wanted to share you share you my thoughts, um, what I'm going through in this pandemic. Well, have a great day, and take care. Bye-bye. Wow, Giselle. Thank you for calling in. Thank you for taking the time. And thank you for reminding everyone of just how serious this pandemic is. And it is a pandemic, everybody. It's the whole world, worldwide. We are all in this together, all of us humans on this one planet. And here on this planet, my friends, science rules. Now, if you like science rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us find out who's listening, what you like listening to it, and helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. Science Rules Coronavirus Edition is a production of Witness Docs from Stitcher. The show is produced by Stephanie Kariuki, Claire Rawlinson, and Corey S. Powell. Our engineer is Luce Fleming, who also mixed this episode. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Special thanks, of course, to Casey Halford. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer here at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, Science Rules. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions.